thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Last week in chapter 10, we saw the start of a pivotal turning point in uh, the early church. And the first nine chapters of Acts, we basically see Jewish Christians reaching out to other Jewish people, mainly in the nation of Israel. But that was never God's intention. God didn't just want Jewish Christians reaching out to Jewish people. God's uh, intention was for it to go far beyond that uh, to Gentiles as well. If you remember back in uh, Acts chapter 1 when we started this book in verse 8, Jesus shared something with his followers that was so important. I said, actually, this is really kind of the theme verse for the entire book of Acts. And it says this. Okay. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This first pivotal event that happened in the early church we looked at when we had the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon Jesus' followers. And obviously that was a, a very important turning point. But notice once they received the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus reveals to them what he wanted them to do. He says, I want you to be witnesses of me. I want you to share the gospel for me. Where? Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and to the ends of of the earth. Now, in the first nine chapters uh, of the book of Acts, we mainly see Jewish believers ministering to other Jewish believers. But notice it's just in these areas Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem. Now, that's kind of as far as it went in the first nine chapters, and it's just mainly Jews reaching other Jews in Israel. But they have yet to branch out beyond Israel to the Gentiles, going to what Jesus says, the ends of the earth. And so we looked at last uh, week, there's this big change that has transpired because the reason that these Jews didn't go beyond Israel, didn't reach out to Gentiles, was because they were prejudiced. They had a prejudice against the Gentiles. Gentiles to them were just unclean sinners that God wanted nothing to do with. They believed that God showed partiality to them, that God loved the Jews, that God wanted to reach Jews, but that was it. He didn't want to reach anyone else. He didn't want to reach the Gentiles. He didn't want to save them. He didn't want to fill them with his spirit. They didn't believe salvation was for Gentiles, but they were wrong. God shows no partiality. God died on the cross for the sins of everyone. God's desire is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And last week we saw God teach this very important lesson to Peter. You see, Peter had this perspective of this prejudice towards Gentiles, and God had to show Peter, no, no, I want to save them as well. I want to reach them as well. I want to empower them as well. And so Peter, in obedience to what God had showed him, went to a Gentile's home, the man named Cornelius, that Roman centurion, and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius and all who were in his household, and all of them get saved, and the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So chapter 10, we saw the start of this pivotal change 
Because Peter, one of the main leaders in the church, recognizes this truth that God shows no partiality. I should not allow my prejudice towards the Gentiles to keep me from reaching them with the gospel. But understand, the majority of Jews at the, uh, in the church at this point in time were Jewish. And the majority of them, they don't understand that yet. It's just kind of Peter and the six people who went with them have finally clicked and understand this, but the rest of the early church, they don't get this reality. They don't get that God wants to reach the Gentiles as well with the gospel. And so here in chapter 11, this pivotal turning point that we see starting in chapter 10 is going to get even more significant because now it's going to move beyond Peter and the six men who were with him and go to the rest of the church who are mainly Jewish people, they're going to recognize this truth that God shows no partiality and that he wants them to reach out to Gentiles. And we're going to see that they finally come to a place where they start to fulfill Acts chapter 1-8. It's not just Judea and Jerusalem and Samaria. They're now going to start branching out to the ends of the earth and going to places where Gentiles live to reach them. So let's start by looking at the response that the Jewish Christians have to what Peter did. Peter goes to a Gentile's house. He preaches a gospel to Gentiles. Gentiles get saved. And this was something that was very much you know, anti the Jewish culture and mindset of the time. So let's see how they respond to what Peter did. Starting Acts chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? So the news now has traveled. Remember, Peter is there you know, a little ways from Jerusalem, and the news has gotten back to Jerusalem of what Peter had done, that he went to a Gentile's home, that he shared the gospel with these Gentiles, and that these Gentiles had gotten saved. Now, they kind of don't really focus on the response of the Gentiles. They're more focused on the fact that Peter had the audacity to go into a home of a Gentile, because remember, they thought Gentiles were unclean. It was something that they would never do. And so they come to Peter to contend with him. Basically, how dare you, Peter, go into a home of a Gentile? They specifically said, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? What are you thinking, Peter? You know that goes against what we are as Jews. Now, remember, Peter was of the same mindset. Peter felt the same way. God had to do something supernatural in him, as we saw last week, to change his heart. Because he thought, yeah, there's no way I would ever go to a Gentile's house. There's no way I would ever eat with a Gentile. He viewed them in the same way as these guys who are contending with him now. And so they come to him with this contention. They come to him with this question of like, what are you doing, Peter, eating with Gentiles? And let's see how now Peter responds to them. He's going to share what transpired. He's going to give a basic summary of what we looked at last week in chapter 10. So these guys understand why he did this and what transpired when he did this. Verse 4 says this. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, and an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. 
But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and when we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell your words by which you, all, you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. So here Peter takes them back to what started all of this. You want to know why I had the audacity to go into a Gentile's home, why I would do this, why me as a Jew would ever even consider this? Well, I'll tell you. And he gives the same thing that he told, uh, as we saw last week, this vision from heaven comes down of this sheet with all these non-kosher animals, all these animals that Jews would never eat. And God says to Peter, rise, kill and eat. Peter says, whoa, whoa, no, not so, Lord. Uh, nothing non kosher has ever touched my mouth. I've never eaten those things. And as we noted last week, the, the reason for this vision wasn't about food. It was God revealing to Peter, you know what? Don't call common what I've cleansed. God had wanted to cleanse not just Jews, but everyone through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so he was helping Peter recognize Gentiles, don't call them common, don't steer clear of them, don't stay away from them, because I want to cleanse them just like I want to cleanse you of your sin. I died on the cross not just for the Jews, but for everyone. And so this helps Peter see this recognition that God shows no partiality, that he desires to do this. And so this vision happens three times to really sink into Peter's head. And so he hears this, and all of a sudden, three men show up at his house. And the Holy Spirit says, go with them. Just leave and go with them. I have sent them. So Peter goes, and he heads to Cornelius' house, and he starts preaching the gospel. And as he preaches the gospel, Cornelius and all his house accept it, get saved, and... They're empowered by the Holy Spirit. They start speaking in tongues. So Peter shares this news with these Jewish Christians who are contending with them, helping them understand, this is why I went, because God showed me this vision and told me to go, and this is what transpired when I went. The Gentiles accepted the Lord, but not only that, the Holy Spirit was given to them. Well, let's see how they respond to what Peter shared. Verse 16. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. Peter tells the Jewish Christians something that is so important. He says, you know what, remember what Jesus said? Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, right before Jesus ascends back to heaven, he gives his final words to the disciples. And one of the things he says is, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And right after that is when he does Acts 1.8. Basically, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, and then when you receive it, you'll be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So 
Peter says, you remember what Jesus said about being baptized by the Holy Spirit? Now, these guys would have remembered because many of them were present when Jesus said it, and all of them had received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So, so Peter first by, starts by reminding them of this wonderful gift that God promised to give those who believed in him. And then he shares something even more significant. Hey, as I'm preaching the gospel to Cornelius and these Gentiles, something happens that I didn't expect, and I'm sure you didn't expect either, The Holy Spirit was given to them. The gift of the Holy Spirit was given to them. They start speaking in tongues. God did that. He did it. I didn't choose to do that. I didn't give them the Holy Spirit. God chose to save them, and God chose to give them this wonderful gift. And notice this question he asked them. If God gave the Gentiles the same gift of the Holy Spirit as he gave us Jews when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should withstand God? This is such a great question because Peter's saying, you know what, you're contending with me. Why would I do this? Well, let me just throw this back at you. God obviously accepts Gentiles because he's proven it by giving them the Holy Spirit, just like he gave to us. And as I watch God give the Holy Spirit to these Gentiles, as I see God approves of them, even though maybe I did not, God demonstrated that so powerfully. And he ends with this great question for them, who was I to withstand God? It's obvious what God was doing. He's doing this clear work in the Gentiles. Who am I to try to withstand the work that God was doing? Who is I to let my prejudice say, no, 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 Lord, you can't reach these people. No, no, you can't give them this gift. That's only for us Jews. Peter recognized this is a work God was doing, and who am I to try to stop what God was doing? Well, this question hits these Jewish Christians hard, and they're silent. They're pondering that. They're thinking about the logic that goes behind that, and it clicks for them as well. They understand God wants the Gentiles to be saved. He wants to give them the gift of the Holy Spirit as well, and they respond by glorifying God, and they say, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They get it. Remember last week we looked at Jonah. He didn't glorify God when God reached Gentiles. He was miserable and angry, and how dare you, God? And this shows the different heart between Jonah and the believers there in the early church. If they hear that God wants to reach Gentiles, instead of like, oh, why would you want to reach those ungodly Gentiles? No, we glorify you for that. And you now want to grant repentance of life, not just to us Jews, but also to Gentiles as well. This is such a huge turning point a pivotal point in the early church, where now the whole church realizes God's plan is much bigger than they first thought. It's not just to reach Jews, it's to reach the world with the gospel. And God wants them to be a part of reaching out not only to fellow Jews, but also to Gentiles. And I want you to note something important here. Note the heart of these Jewish Christians were soft enough to be guided and to be changed by the Lord by his word, by his work that was clearly demonstrated through what he did with Cornelius and his household, they were soft enough to say, you know what? We see the work of God. We hear the word of God proclaimed to Peter, and we're willing to allow that to change us. We're willing to allow that to guide us. Because they could have just said, we don't care what God did, and we don't care what God said. We don't accept this. We don't want to reach Gentiles. We don't think that God should do this. They could have been hard-hearted as Jonah was, but they were soft, and they were pliable, and they were open to what God was doing, even though they didn't expect it, even though it was among a people group that they definitely didn't expect God to reach, they were willing to accept it and willing to allow the word of God and the work of God to help them to overcome their prejudice. 
And I believe that's what God wants to do in the church world today. He wants us to allow his word and his work to overcome our prejudice, that our heart would be pliable, that we'd be willing to be changed and directed by God as we look at his word and his work throughout our culture. You know, sadly, throughout church history, there have been many Christians who have tried to withstand the clear work of God, who have tried to say, no, no, God, I don't care that this is clearly something you're doing. I don't like it. I don't like that people group because I have a prejudice towards them, and I don't want you to do this work, and I'm not going to be a part of this work that you're doing. I'm so grateful that Peter and these Jews weren't like that. Peter says, who am I to withstand God in the clear work that he's obviously doing among the Gentiles? I have a choice. I can either submit to it or I can withstand it. And he chose to submit to it. You know, the Calvary Chapel movement, which our church comes out of, started with a clear work of God among a people group that many Christians didn't want to reach out to. A people group that many Christians looked at and just thought, you know what, they're, they're never getting saved and we don't even want to be around them. They're just dirty, sinful people that we don't like. That people group were hippies. And Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, actually it was his wife first, had a burden for hippies. God changed their heart for this people group, and they start reaching out to them. And God does a revival, a a huge revival. Thousands upon thousands of hippies are getting saved. And the thing that saddens me most as I look through the history of that are so many churches and pastors and Christians who saw the clear work of God saving these hippies, and not just saving them, but transforming them and putting them into ministry, and they were just doing great works for the Lord, just saying, you know what, we don't want anything to do with them. We don't want anything to do with this work of God. They were just trying to withstand it, because they had this prejudice against this people group, and they said, you know, we're not going to be a part of this move of God. And you know what, I want you to realize, they didn't stop the move of God. The move of God continued to go forward. The only thing that happened was they weren't able to be a part of it. They weren't able to receive the blessing of joining with what God wanted to do instead of saying, I'm not going to be a part of this and I'm just going to continue to reach those that I don't have prejudice against. These Christians here in the early church, they chose to submit to what God was doing, accept what God was doing, glorify God for what he's doing, And recognize that he also is granting to the Gentiles repentance of life. So what we see here in chapter 11 is really a bigger turning point than what we saw in chapter 10. Chapter 10 was the start because God takes one of the founders and the main pillars of the early church, Peter, and he changes his heart and he helps him to understand this. And then God does a work in all of the early church to help them see, I show no partiality. I want to reach the world with the gospel, not just Jews. So God's doing this great, pivotal change. But you know, there's actually an even bigger, pivotal change that God's going to start doing. You see, it was a big turning point for these Jews to get to a place where they recognize God wants to reach Gentiles. He wants to save Gentiles. He wants to empower Gentiles with the Holy Spirit. But there's something even greater that God wants to do. It's one thing to look at a different nationality that you have prejudice against and say, you know what, God can save that group and he can fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit. But it's something very different to accept that now that group and this group are all equal in Christ. And that is the next turning point that God wants to bring the early church to. For Jews, not just to say, I accept that Gentiles can be saved. I accept that God can fill them with his spirit. But to say, you know what? When they accept Jesus Christ, we all become one. 
For many of these Jews, this will never happen for them. They'll never come to this knowledge and accept it and live it out. And for others, it's going to take a while to get to this place to recognize that God wants to bring equality within the body of Christ. And I think this is something so important, and I want to note it before we move on, because I feel that in the church world today, we have the same issue. There are many who would say, you know what, yeah, God can, can you know, save someone of another nationality or someone that I have some prejudice with or someone from a different background or, or social status than me, and he can fill them with the Spirit, absolutely. But to say that we're equal, I mean, come on, I'm superior to them. That is often the mindset that we have within the body of Christ. And to come to this place where we accept equality in Christ is a struggle that many have. The Jews definitely struggled with it, and we're going to see that throughout the book of Acts. We'll see that throughout the New Testament of this struggle, to this mindset that we are superior and we are not equal to Gentiles. You know, last week we looked at the fact that God wants to do a work in us where we come to understand how he shows no partiality. He wants to help us overcome our prejudice to reach out to people, but he also wants us to come to this place where we see that, you know what, Regardless of someone's nationality, race, social status, whether they you know, have a background of drug addiction or prostitution or, or just some sinful lifestyle, whatever it is, when they come to Christ, there is an equality that comes with that. Paul recognized this, and he writes it several times in many of his letters to different churches because it was such an issue among the church, this issue of, you know what, you need to see that you're equal in Jesus Galatians chapter 3 is is one of these places where Paul writes something that is just so foundational for us as believers to understand. It says this, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The first thing I want you to note here of what Paul says is that we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice the starting point. Everyone comes to God the same way. We all come to him through faith in Jesus. You know, as I mentioned last week, there are basically two categories of people. Sinners who have not believed in Jesus Christ who are not saved and sinners who have believed Jesus Christ and who are saved. And there's only one way to go from a sinner who doesn't have salvation to a sinner who does, and that is through accepting Jesus Christ. It's not through the works that you do. It's not through the works that I do. It's believing in the works that Jesus has done for us. And this is something that's so important because we're all in the same category before we accept Christ. We're all sinners who are lost in need of a Savior. And we all come to Jesus the same way. It's not that, oh, I've done some wonderful work that you haven't done, and therefore I'm better than you, and that's how I've received my salvation. No, we all come to Jesus the same way, accepting the work that he's done for us, not a work that we do for him, because there is no work that we could do for him to save us. And so all of us start in the same point, lost sinners in need of salvation, and we come to Jesus the same way, accepting the work that he did for us. We start on an equal playing field. We are equal in that. And since we're saved the same way, we are one, we are equal in Christ. But notice what Paul says in verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are one in Christ Jesus. What Paul says here was a revolutionary statement in his time, and really it's still a revolutionary statement in our day today. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, Jews and Greeks, or Gentiles, are one. 
In Christ Jesus, there is a oneness, there is an equality that comes between these two different nationalities of people. In Christ Jesus, Jews are not better than Gentiles, Gentiles are not better than Jews. In Christ, that dividing barrier between Jew and Gentile is broken. They now can fellowship as equals. In Christ Jesus, the barrier between different nationalities is broken. In Christ, American, Mexican, European, Asian, African, the list goes on and on. They all come together as one. There is an equality among believers in Jesus. Now, if that statement wasn't revolutionary enough, Paul goes on to say even more revolutionary things. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. See, the dividing line between Jew and Gentile, between one nationality and the other, isn't the only thing that God has broken down in Christ. There's also this dividing line between slave and free and male and female. As I mentioned last week in Paul's day, the Jewish rabbis would quote this morning prayer that was popular among men, not so much among women. And it would thank God that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. Because all those things in that society were looked at as, as beneath me. I am superior to that, and thank God that I'm not any of those things. And so Paul deals with all three of those things. Those three things that you think make you superior to others, you know what? God has brought equality in all of them. In the Roman culture, slaves were viewed as property to do with what you please, not people you should treat well. Slaves were basically in the category of animals instead of people. Because under Roman law, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to your slave. They were your property. You want to kill them? Go ahead. You want to mistreat them? Go ahead. They're yours. You can do with them as you please. They're not people to treat well. They're property to do as, as you please. So imagine the difference between a free person and a slave. Free people definitely felt like they're in a whole different class, a whole different category than slaves. We are far superior to you. You are owned by someone. We are free. And then Paul brings up this, this mind-boggling change for them to think about, no, 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 in Christ you're equal. Because they would have never seen themselves as equal. One would have seen themselves as beneath, and the other would have seen themselves as above. But no, 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 in Jesus, there's an equality that comes. Revolutionary statements. Another one that he brings up is men and women. They're one. They're equal in Christ. You know, I've always been dumbfounded by the fact that feminists hate Christianity. Because you know what? From Paul's day to now, every religious belief system, and in our culture as well, men are always superior to women. Christianity is the only religion where women are lifted to the point where there is an equality with men. And I just kind of think, feminists, come on, you should be joining Christianity, not rejecting it. It's the only religion that actually exalts women. In Christ, men and women are equal. When a man and a woman accepts Christ, that dividing barrier that claims that one is superior to the other is now gone. Sadly, in our world today, there are a lot of divisions between different groups of people. Even in the political arena that we have now, we're just fueling the fire of division and this group against that group and this group against that group. Divisions between men and women, rich and poor, different races, different nationalities, young and old, educated, non-educated, Republican, Democrat. The list goes on and on. There's all this divisiveness within our culture. And one of the main reasons for this division is because one group thinks they're better or superior to another. But what we need to understand is that when you accept Christ, those divisions are broken. When you accept Christ, there's now a oneness that comes in Jesus he brings equality to each one of us. You see, before you accepted Christ, 
Your identity was in your race, your sex, your social status, your education, your job, your relationships, your accomplishments. As people, we view our value and worth through our identity. And we place value and worth on others through their identity. You see, there are certain races and social statuses that we as a society place higher value on. And so we say, you are more valuable than people of a different race or a different social status. And we just have that within our culture. That's just a reality of it. And so we place value on certain races and certain social statuses above others. There are certain levels of education, like doctors, that we place a higher level of value on. Oh, you have higher education? Well, then you are of higher value in our culture than those who didn't get that education or those who didn't finish high school. If you have a lower education, society says you have a lower value. There are certain jobs that give you a higher value, certain relationships that give you a higher value, certain accomplishments that give you a higher value based on our culture. And so if you don't have those jobs, if you don't have those relationships, if you haven't done those things, then you are less valuable. And the reality is we've all grown up in a society where we view our identity and our race and our sex and our social status and our education, our job, our relationships, our accomplishments, and that's just the reality of what we've been growing up in. We've been taught to view our value and worth through our identity, and we've been taught to view other people's value and worth through their identity. But something so vital for us to understand is that when you accept Jesus Christ, your identity is no longer in the things that this world gets their identity from. Your identity is now in just one thing, and that is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your identity is now in Christ. And the wonderful reality of that is now your value and your worth is no longer in anything else. Your value and your worth is in one thing, in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how valuable am I am to him? Well, he showed how valuable you are by giving his life. He paid the ultimate price to show you are so valuable, I'm willing to give my life for you. You have so much worth to me that I gave my life for you. Our identity is no longer in our accomplishments or lack of accomplishments. Ultimately, our identity is in Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. And because of that, we are all equal. We are all of the same value. We are all priceless to God. You know, this is a truth that for many Christians takes a while to get. I know for me personally, it took a while. For many years of my Christian life, I saw my identity in all these different things that I list of my sex and my social status and you know, my accomplishments. And, and this is what made me valuable or not valuable. And I just kind of bought into the way in which the world governed themselves in that way. And it took a while for me to come to this recognition that, no, my identity is in Jesus. And even more important, my worth and my value is not in what I do, but what Jesus has done for me and that he loves me and values me no matter what because I am now his child. Now that our identity is in Jesus, that should be the most important identity that we relate to. All the rest are really irrelevant in comparison to that one. That is the one that makes all the difference. This is such an important truth to understand as believers because sadly, many Christians still divide themselves from other believers. They divide themselves over these issues of Race, nationality, social status, education, jobs, whatever it may be. And I think, well, I'm superior to you because I've had this accomplishment and you haven't. Or I'm of this race and you're not. Or I have this job and you don't. Or my education's here and yours is there. And we still keep this this mindset of superiority. 
And it hinders us from recognizing we're equal. In Jesus, we are equal. In Jesus, we have the same value. And it's so vital for us as the body of Christ to to see that and come together in that unified way and to recognize we're all just sinful people in need of a Savior, and we've come to that belief in Jesus who has saved us. He's done all the work, and he loves us so much and places so much value on us, and we have that equally. So here in chapter 11, we see this huge turning point These Jewish Christians finally understand God wants to reach Gentiles. God wants to empower Gentiles. But it's going to take a little time before they get to a realization that I'm equal to Gentiles. Gentiles are equal to me. But let's see how they respond because they recognize this important truth. Hey, God wants us to reach Gentiles. We haven't been doing that yet. So is this truth going to do anything? Is it just going to be an intellectual understanding? Or are they actually going to do something practical with it? Verse 19 says this. Then those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Luke tells us that there were believers, and if you remember back, Saul started that huge persecution right after the murder of Stephen, and he's going and he's imprisoning and killing Christians, and so they flee. They free, flee Jerusalem, they flee Judea, and we're told that many traveled as far as way as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, and so you see those are, are northern areas moving farther north uh, from Israel. But the important thing to note is that Luke tells us they were preaching the word to no one but Jews only. They left Israel, but notice they're still not preaching to Gentiles. They're just preaching to Jews who don't live in Israel anymore because there were Jews who lived outside of Israel. So they come to Antioch and they say, oh, okay, let's find where the Jews are and let's preach to them. Oh, they come to Phoenicia. Okay, let's find where the Jews are and they preach to them. They have yet to reach Gentiles because remember their prejudiced mindset was, God doesn't want to reach Gentiles, so we'll just go to other places in the world where there are Jews, and we'll reach them with the gospel. But now we're going to see a change in the way in which these Jewish Christians ministered, because now they recognize God wants to reach more than just Jews, we're told. But some of these Jewish Christians were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching Jesus. Now, this Greek word translated Hellenist, the people that they spoke to, is interesting because it means one who imitates the manners and customs or the worship of the Greeks and use the Greek language. This originally was just mainly of Gentiles, those who kind of adopted the Greek worship and the Greek culture and the Greek language. But the Jews then took this term Hellenist and they connected it with Jewish people who spoke the Greek language, not who worshipped the Greek gods and did all the other things that this ultimately the, the original word meant. They just kind of like, all right, if you accepted the Greek language and lived in a Greek culture, we call you Hellenists. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 6. There were Hellenists. Remember, their widows were being neglected. These were people from the Greek culture, but they were still Jewish. They still believed in God. But the interesting thing about this is because Luke, writing here, using this term, most commentators believe he's speaking about Gentiles because the original use of this word was not actually for Jews, it was for anyone not just adopting the culture, but the religion of the Greeks and the language of the Greeks were basically were Gentiles. And so that most commentators believe that these men, hey, finally recognize all we've ever been doing is reaching Jews, and now we go to Antioch and we start reaching Gentiles. And notice what transpires. We're told the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. 
Peter was the first example of reaching out to Gentiles. Now we see more of that, and the Lord blesses that. And so let's see how the church in Jerusalem responds. They heard about Peter and what he did. Now they're going to hear about Antioch, and let's see if their response is any different. Verse 22. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Notice the difference now. When they hear it last time, Peter had the audacity to go into a uh, Gentile's home. They contend with Peter. How dare you, Peter? Now they hear the same news. Gentiles in Antioch have been shared by Jewish people. They've gone to them, they've reached out to them, and these Gentiles have accepted the gospel. And instead of, how dare you, it's, hey, let's send them some reinforcements. Let's send them some help. Let's send them a Jew to go and help reach Gentiles. And the Jew that they chose is Barnabas. What a wonderful choice. We've heard a lot about Barnabas. Remember Barnabas had his name changed to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. They gave him that name because he gave all of his possessions there in the early church so that other people could you know, have the needs that they needed to be taken care of. But we also noted that he was an encourager because when Saul got saved and he finally came to Jerusalem and told people his story about being saved, they didn't believe him. No, 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 you're just, you know, this undercover guy still trying to imprison us and kill us. It was Barnabas who came and said, you know what? I believe you, Saul. I'm going to accept you for being a Christian, and I'm going to bring you to the apostles and encourage people to accept you as well. And so Barnabas was that bridge to help people recognize, no, Saul has been changed, and his life has been transformed. And so they send Barnabas, but notice we're told something else about Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith. You know, we need more men like Barnabas today. Good men, filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with faith in God. Well, Barnabas, he gets to Antioch. He sees the grace of God, how graciously God was to save Gentiles. And notice his response. As we noted before, you know, the Jews, when they hear about Peter, they're upset. When Jonah heard about the Ninevites, he was upset. When Barnabas hears about Gentiles getting saved... He has a different response. He is glad. It brings gladness to his heart. Wonderful, Lord, that you're willing to save not just Jews, but also Gentiles. And so he comes and he sees this great work that God is doing. And he comes like he always does. He encourages all the believers in Antioch. Let me encourage you to continue with purpose of heart. Continue with the Lord. You know, Barnabas, you know, that, that name is so great for him because we just constantly see him encouraged. You know, we have so many discouragers in the body of Christ. We need more encouragers. We need people who are going to come alongside you and encourage you, not try to bring you down. Try to encourage you to grow in your walk with the Lord. And and Barnabas was a man like that. And so many, we're told, were added to the Lord. Many got saved as Barnabas was there in Antioch. And so the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to Antioch to help with the work that God was doing. Now I want you to notice Barnabas recognized there's a lot that God's doing, and I need help. And so let's see who Barnabas goes to get to help him with the work that God was doing there in Antioch, verse 25. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Barnabas... 
The one who reached out to Saul when Saul first came to Jerusalem, when everyone else rejected him, Barnabas was the man to say, you know what, I know God's done a work in your life, and I want to make sure everyone else does as well. And now he's up there in Antioch, and he's serving, and he realizes, you know what, I need help. But you know what, there's a place called Tarsus, not very far from Antioch, as you can see, just a little bit west. He knows that's where Saul fled, that's where Saul went, that's his hometown. And so he goes over to Tarsus, he gets Saul, Explains what's going on in Antioch. Hey, come back with me. We're going to reach Gentiles with the gospel. And so Saul comes back with Barnabas. And notice they're there for a year. For a year they invest in the church there. For a year they pour into these mainly Gentile Christians. And I think it's interesting to know because oftentimes as we read about Paul's missionary journeys, it's always Paul and Barnabas. But in reality, Barnabas was the one who first received Paul. He was the one who went after Paul. He was the one who helped Paul get into the ministry there in Antioch. And that's going to be the church that sends them out on their first missionary journey. But, you know, Barnabas is kind of the the mature one investing into Saul, who obviously is going to uh, continue to mature himself. And God's going to use him in great ways. But here's where these two kind of partner up uh, for the first time in ministry towards Gentiles. But notice the next thing that we're told, we're told the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And this is important because remember, you know, we noted that they, they were called the way. That was what they were referred to. You know, there was, oh, those people who were of the way. And now all of a sudden we see this change in the way in which people refer to them Christians. And obviously that name stuck because that's what we still call people today, Christians. But I want you to note something because today I think you hear this word Christian and many people have different you know, thoughts as to what that word means. There's different connotations, some that are positive, some that are negative, some that are biblical, some that are unbiblical. But you know, the first important thing to understand is back in that time, the ending suffix I-A-N meant the party of or belonging to. So when I-A-N is added to Christ, it gives you the word Christ in, Christian. It means the party of Christ or belonging to Christ. So this word is sort of like saying Jesusites or Jesus people, the ones who are associated with Jesus. It was, a, you know, hey, they're Christians. They're the ones who are associated with Christ. They're the ones who are preaching Christ. They're the ones who do stuff for Christ. That's where it all originated. That was the focus of the word. Sadly, today, it's changed. You know, for many people, there's no association with Jesus because so many Christians have done things that are just so unbiblical that their association with Christianity is very negative, very sad. Uh, And so, you know, I think today, you know, I wouldn't say don't use the word Christianity, but, you know, when someone talks to you personally, it's probably better to say I'm a follower of Jesus and kind of, you know, emphasize that relationship with Jesus instead of just throwing out the broad term Christianity because as you share with people, you don't have any concept of where they're at when they hear that word because they might have all sorts of negative thoughts about that, and you want to bring them into what it actually means of being a follower of Christ. And so we see this term first used in this context of those who followed and were connected to Jesus. And so Barnabas and Saul, they're effectively ministering to Gentiles in Antioch, and more and more Gentiles start following Jesus. More people are getting saved. They're called Christians. Let's see how this chapter ends, verse 27. And in these days, prophet came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. 
And so during that time, Luke reveals something important. There was this prophet named Agabus. And God, through the Holy Spirit, spoke, saying, you know what? There's going to be a famine. Probably reminds you back in Genesis, remember, with Joseph and God, you know, revealing through Joseph there was going to be this great famine throughout the world that was going to happen. And Joseph saves all that food so that, you know, Egypt and all the uh, Jews did not die. But God, again, he's warning the church, hey, this famine is coming. But notice the response of these Gentile believers. This famine's coming, so let's gather stuff for ourselves. Let's get all these resources for ourselves. Let's look after ourselves. Well, actually, notice what they do. They send money to the Jews in Judea. Here are Gentile believers. They're in Antioch. They hear about this famine that's coming. God prophesies it, so they start collecting money to support the believers in Judea who are mainly Jewish. And I note that because obviously we've seen God do a work in Jews to overcome their prejudice towards Gentiles, but understand it wasn't a one-sided thing. Gentiles hated Jews as well. It was a mutual distaste and dislike towards one another. You know, the Gentiles felt like, you just feel superior to us. You're always looking down upon us. Well, we hate you as well. And so there was a mutual thing going on there. So God also did a work of change in the heart of these Gentiles. who would probably be like, hey, we're just going to look after our own. We're going to look after fellow Gentiles. No, we're going to show love to Jews. We're going to send money and resources to Jews. We want to reach out to them. And you see God doing a work not only in the Jews changing their prejudice towards Gentiles, but also working in the Gentiles, changing their prejudice towards Jews. And that's ultimately what God wants to do in the body of Christ, that we don't continue with those mindsets. We don't continue with that prejudice. We allow God to change our heart and to recognize that he wants to reach everyone. But even bigger than that, we're all equal in Christ. And to not see ourselves as superior and better than a different race or nationality or background or culture, once they accept Christ, there's an equality that comes with that. Let's pray.